You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined us. We want to spend the rest of this hour looking at the jobs market and the workforce here in Michigan and throughout the country. A little later, we're going to dig into national trends, which reveal that even though national unemployment is really, really low, the quality of jobs for many in low-wage positions leaves a lot to be desired. But first, we're going to look at the role of artificial intelligence and automation in Michigan's workforce with someone who knows it well, Executive Director and CEO of Automation Alley, Tom Kelly. Welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thanks for having me. Yeah. So I, I want to first talk about Automation Alley, which mm-hmm. was founded in 1999, which I, I, th- I always kind of giggle about that yeah. when I think about it now, because the idea of automation was really different in 1999 than it is in 2020. But but catch us up Absolutely. on the history of Automation Alley and what you guys are doing now. Yeah, so Automation Alley was founded in 1999. Uh, it was really uh, uh, spearheaded by Brooks Patterson to say, how do we tell the story of the region that it's not about the Rust Belt? It's actually about really high-tech workers in software, in digitization, that really understood what's happening. Because we were getting kind of a bad rap out there, Steve, <laughs> when talking about what, what was going on. So fast forward to when Ken Rogers, who was the former executive director, retired. We kind of shifted and we said, look, it was about economic development. But what I saw was a real need to what I call return to our roots, which is focus on automation. Because this fourth industrial revolution, which you're, you're hearing coming out of Davos at the World Economic Forum, is really washing over everybody in the world when you think artificial intelligence, 3D printing. So we recommitted to a mission of being Michigan's Industry 4.0 Knowledge Center. How do we help Michigan, both manufacturers and workers, accumulate wealth that is going to be created from this fourth industrial revolution? Mm -hmm. Really exciting times. So a recent story in Crane's Detroit Business looked at the way that national trends toward AI and automation are changing the workforce and could be especially transformative here in Michigan. So tell us about what kind of jobs are using automation. Well, obviously, um, my expertise is around manufacturing. And we know manufacturing has been automating for a long time. And one of the misperceptions that we want to clear up is that, you know, as we automated, we created a stronger competitive position against the world. And I will, I will always make the argument that it wasn't automation that took all the jobs. It was Mexico and China. Low-cost labor took the jobs. Well, that has been played out. And now the entire world is trying to embrace this fourth industrial revolution, including China and Mexico. But Michigan, who's been doing this for a long time, we understand that very well. What The problem that we face, Stephen, is that with this new artificial intelligence and collaborative robotics, we view this new world very similarly to the way we viewed the old world, that, oh, the robot is our enemy. And we're trying to change that and say, no, the robot is your friend, especially for the worker. If you take this out uh, to a, on a 10-year arc, the worker is going to own the robot. Not it, That's the most efficient use of capital, like a, like a worker owns their car, like a worker owns their, their printer at home. When these things get cheap enough, this is what we're, what we're trying to say, that why we should embrace it. So there's a really common belief that there's a tension between automation and work, that robots and automation are taking jobs from people right. and not creating new opportunities. How should we be thinking of that? So in the short term, as robotics and automation is complex, it takes the worker's job because 
the cost to train and all that accrues to the manufacturer. As automation becomes ubiquitous and robots become cheap and plentiful and smart, the capital, it makes no sense to organize all the robots in a plant that sits idle on weekends or whatever. People will start to own their own robots, the same as people own their own vehicles. Even though they only use a vehicle 5% of the time, they'll pay $30,000 for it because the utility is so darn high. And that's what's going to happen with manufacturing. People are going to own their own 3D printers, and Ford's going to put out a request that says, I need uh, 10,000 parts this week. And people in Detroit are going to build up these parts and ship them to Ford. At the same time, to take advantage of that, we really do have to make sure that people get the training that they need, that they get the educational opportunities that they're supposed to have when they're younger, and we're not always doing everything we could be to be doing that here in Michigan. Yeah, well, we have an education system that's built up over time to separate capital and labor. Labor, here's your place, here's what you need to know, feed the system. We need to change that and say education is about empowering people to be their own self-employed, self-actualized people. AI and 3D printing is going to do that. If we resist it and say, no, 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 Tom, I remember from the third industrial revolution, we need to resist that. And you say, no, it's a new world. By the way, young people, they're all ready for it. It's, it's middle-aged and older like you and I that say, oh, I Still remember those Still trying days. to adapt, right? Yeah, right. Still trying to adapt. We're, yeah. we're the dinosaurs. The young people are ready to make it happen. My guest is Tom Kelly. He's the executive director and CEO of Automation Alley. We're talking about the ways in which AI and automation are changing the workforce, both nationally and especially here in Michigan. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Tell us how you feel about working with automation or AI. Are you already seeing some elements of this at your job? Uh, Do you think it's an opportunity for businesses to grow or are you really concerned about the notion of being phased out in an increasingly technology-driven Workforce. Again, 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will work you into the conversation. Um, in a little bit, we're also going to talk about wages in the current economy and whether they're keeping pace enough for people to be able to make ends meet and get ahead, even though the job numbers are really great, the lowest in many, many years. Uh, Tom, I want to ask if you have a sense of when automation and AI are going to be sort of commonplace in Michigan, or are we already there? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really tough question. Um, I think, in my view, I see automation, artificial intelligence, 3D printing all coming together. I would view it as arrived when people, when manufacturing is democratized and everybody is able to participate, much like an Uber driver uses their machine to make money for themselves. And Uber takes a little cut of that to provide the oil and the system to make it all go. That's where manufacturing is going. So in my world, we have a long way to go, probably a decade before you start to see that, where where people are able to be in control of their own lives in a manufacturing environment. Today, there's a lot of AI uh, that's being useful um, for, for large manufacturers, for tier ones. When you get past the tier ones into the smaller manufacturers, you're not seeing a lot of it. And that concerns me greatly. And and what is it that we should be doing that we're not 
doing, I guess, in terms of training our kids to embrace robotics, artificial intelligence, that and 3D printing. That is the future in a nutshell for manufacturing. And we don't tend to um, uh, value careers in manufacturing. We push them into these service industries, and you think, but that's the low-wage, dead-end job. <laughs> Why would you push them into that career? Push them into a career where uh, there's, there's massive wealth that gets created. When you make something, a lot of wealth is created. The problem is the wealth has been accruing to the capitalists and not to the worker because we separated that. Uh, you know, Unfortunately, we separated that in the days of Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we created the environment with which we are now victims of. Mm. And we need to break that cycle and say, no, we need to get back. Uh, what, what, what artificial intelligence will do is allow us to get back to that craftsman stage where the person owns the mechanism with which they can create the wealth. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Denise in Detroit. Denise, what's on your mind? Hello. Hey, Denise. How are you? Oh, hi. Yeah, go um, ahead. I was just going to say I love his enthusiasm. I uh, think uh, technology is great, but I think the people creating it should really consider educating the children, so that they will be able to participate because it could possibly happen. They come up with artificial intelligence to take his job. (laughs) And when you're in that position, see how, you know, you might feel about that. It's not (laughs) going to take much to Denise, Denise, I really appreciate the call and, and the comments. Tom, do you worry? That somebody or something else could do your job. I mean, how how worried? I think what what she's really getting at there is that everybody seems vulnerable to this. Yeah. Well, well, well. You know, two answers to that. First one is that I I, I know for a fact that AI is going to take a portion of my job, right? But it's going to be the portions of the job that I don't enjoy doing. Most of my job and everybody's job is doing things to feed the system, to make it go. It's not doing the fun stuff that where you're using your brain, where you're, where you're happy in what you're doing. So, so AI is going to take a portion of my job. But I totally agree with Denise when she says that we're doing, you know, we need to teach our kids. And, and, and that is the problem. That is the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is we are not teaching our children how to embrace AI and robotics and 3D printing because that is the future they're going to go. We can't stick our head in the sand. The whole world is doing this. We can't say, look, let's build a wall and keep the barbarians out. (laughs) It ain't going to happen. It won't work. One of the ironies is, of course, kids today, uh, and I have two teenagers, they're, they're facility with this stuff is remarkable. They've grown up in a world where the screen was as prevalent as any other tool at a at a very young age. Mm-hmm. And even that facility I think is not the equivalent of being trained or prepared to deal with the automation and sort of robotics that that dominate yeah. the workplace. Well, so they're kind of like uh, you know a step in that direction, yeah. but not all of them are 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 as many steps ahead as they yeah. should be. That's right. How do you take your knowledge and passion as a young person and and create that arc that says but this is how you make money at it, right? That that's what education should be. Here's how you learn a skill that allows you to make lifelong income 
off of that skill. And by the way, these kids are already lifelong learners. If you ever watched a young person, they are bleeding in information. Sadly, it's from places like TikTok, but don't get me started because <laughs> I, have, I have two young kids myself. Um, but they, they are constant voracious, uh, voracious uh, uh, consumers of information. And they're already comfortable with that. What they're not comfortable with is the way we push information in the education system to them. We do it in a way that is unattractive, unpassionate, unmotivated. And I'm not talking about the teachers. They are motivated. Mm -hmm. It's the system that says you have to learn A, B, C, and D, and E. And we're not even sure if those uh, letters that I just gave you are relevant to the world they're going to inherit. To what they're going to have to confront. Right. Murph on Twitter says, your guest proposes not just restructuring manufacturing jobs to unstable gig work, but also moving the costs of acquiring, maintaining, and housing manufacturing equipment onto the individual gig worker. Uber is a cautionary tale, not a model for broadly shared wealth. How do you, how do you answer that criticism? Well, I, you know, I, I appreciate his concerns. And so that's where you need uh, not only, um, uh, you know, what I just described, but you need government and academia at the table saying, how do we manage this? What I'm proposing is not, hey, this is Tom Kelly out there saying, here's the new model. I look at the world and say, if I was a betting man, I bet the world is going to go this way. And I cannot resist that. I resist it to my own detriment. I have to figure out, if this is what I believe the world will be, then how do I do the best job I can to make sure Michigan accrues that wealth? Of, uh, 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 outside of anybody else, right? Uh -huh. We allowed China and Mexico to acc accumulate great wealth because we didn't know how to respond to low-cost labor, and it just happened. Well, I'm hoping under my watch we don't just let I-40 happen and say, you know what, I'm so angry that the world is going this way, I'm just not going to do anything. Hmm. I I'm just going to fight it. That's, that's not how we, we behave for our children. We build a world where we say, I'm sorry this is the world you inherited, but this is the world we got. And if we're going to live in this world, then we have to, to make sure the wealth accumulates to us. We've got to compete somehow. We've sure. got to compete. Right. Theo in Windsor, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Hi. I guess my question dovetails really nicely with the Twitter question because it's also a question about uh, this envisioning this move towards uh, manufacturing being part of the gig economy. Um, I'm a creative, and so I've, I'm already, and also an adjunct uh, a academic, so I'm already kind of participating in this gig economy, and I'm getting to find out uh, firsthand that uh, the gig economy doesn't provide any ability and it doesn't provide benefits. I think we've lost Theo there a bit, but we got a, a, a good sense of what she's talking about there. Right. Again, there are some challenges with sustaining people's lives under this under this new model. Absolutely. And the increasing costs of healthcare yeah. and education and things like that. They sometimes don't seem like they they mesh with this new way of thinking of things. And and again, I don't disagree with her comments. Uh, this is the flip side of the coin that says. The world is going to change, and there are going to be opportunities and deep threats. And both will always be true. And we have to say, how do we maximize the opportunities and minimize the threats? There are many things we could do at the government level for gig economy workers that level the playing field, right? We're in the early stages of this. And so people that are, you know, the, the main economy 
doesn't accept gig workers as de facto, and there's no laws around how a gig worker behaves. And so the mainstream economy takes advantage of the gig worker. Mm-hmm. They, they pay you as if, you know, for, for just that amount of work and everything else is lost. And you say, you know, I, I can't survive on that. And that's true. So we have to change that. So as the world begins to arc towards this new future, there are going to be things that are, are uh, wrong that need to be corrected through regulation, through um, um, uh, associations that make it uh, uh, proper. Mm. The, through uh, unions, by the way. Right. Unions yeah, well, have a role to play. They have a huge forward. role to play, and they're having their own struggles with keeping membership, growing membership, and having the kind of clout that they need to bargain on behalf what if, of the What if workers? a union worker showed up with a collaborative robot in tow? And the robot had a union card. All of a sudden, that robot is the wealth accumulates to the union. Say, hey, instead of paying twenty nine an hour for the worker, you pay forty an hour. But we we take care of it all. Right. GM, you don't have to worry about maintaining the robot. You don't have to worry about uh, how robot. it works. Yeah, I know how to work with the robot. Think of that. Hmm. Think of that. Yeah. What it could do. Let's go to April in Detroit. April, what's on your mind? Yeah. Good morning, Stephen, and thank you so much for talking about this. I'm curious about how you see the entrepreneurship mindset and entrepreneurial training and incubators, accelerators, et cetera, fitting into this. Hmm. Great question, April. Thanks very much for the call. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, and they they have to play a role. I mean, when you look at Spark and TechTown and what's going on with Centropolis and OU – all of these need to continue to create an environment where innovation is happening because it's innovation typically doesn't happen at the bigs. The bigs squash out innovation because they have a business model they want to run. And innovation is actually disruptive to the business model as they know it. So they're, they're not really interested in innovation. They only do it when there's a threat to the business model to make cash. Innovation tends to occur from the grassroots up. Mm-hmm. How do we unleash our children to be able to take that innovation and force the change upon us, right? So, so most of us exist in a system that says, this is the way we always did it, Stephen, and we're not changing. <laughs> and by the way, if you change it, I lose my bonus this year because it'll probably cost money, and I have no interest in that. We need to give our children the chance to say, no, I'm going to come from the outside and break it. Yeah. Okay. And, and they do, they're, they're willing to do that, Stephen. We see it. I, I think them. they see that they have to. And yeah, this is the Greta Thunberg problem yeah. where she says, you know, screw you guys, you people with power. You don't get it. Tom Kelly, executive director and CEO of Automation Alley. It was really great to have you here with us. Thanks, Thanks Stephen. I enjoyed it. Up next, we're going to take a look at national jobs numbers with an excerpt from Brookings who says wages are the thing we should be concerned about. Stay with us on Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We've all heard the jobs reports that come from the Bureau of Labor Statistics each month, and in recent history, things have seemingly been pretty good, as unemployment has consistently been around 4%. 
But what we aren't seeing is what the quality and pay of those jobs is. In a recent piece from Brookings, my next guest, Martha Ross, pulls back the curtain for a more critical look at unemployment numbers, and she finds the reality to be a bit more complicated than what we're led to believe. Martha Ross, who is a fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So in that recent analysis that you and Nicole Bateman did last November, you found that 44% of all workers between 18 and 64 years old barely earn enough to live on. The median earning in that group is just a little over $10 an hour. Talk about what kinds of jobs these are. Uh, it's a lot of uh, retail. It's some administrative jobs. It is uh, child care workers, home health aides. Um, it's a lot of folks who, who, you know, who power our economy that a lot of us interact with every day. And who's working in these in these jobs? I mean, there's always been jobs at that end of the economy. What I feel like has happened is that people who used to work better paying jobs are now working in those low wage jobs. Is that, is that right? Well, what we know is that two thirds of the workers in those low wage jobs are between the ages of 25 to 54. Mm -hmm. So they're in their prime working years. Um, It's, it's not only young people at the beginning of their career. It's not only students. It's not only secondary earners. These are folks who are working to put food on the table and a roof over their head. Hmm. So when we have these jobs reports that say millions of people are joining the workforce, unemployment is much lower than it has been, uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be uncritically sort of acclaiming those numbers. In other words, this side of the economy, the wage side of the economy, is becoming perhaps even more important than the jobs numbers. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, people people want to work in a job for, you know, for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's fulfillment, sometimes it's to get a career um, jump start, but you know, at its base, it's about earning money to live on. And the unemployment rate just doesn't capture that. I it's it's an incomplete measure of how well we're doing. Mm. Uh, My guest is Martha Ross. She's a fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings. We're talking about wages in the current economy. We hear a lot about jobs numbers and how low unemployment is. 4% is about where it has been for a really long time. But even though people are working, a lot of people are not earning enough to make ends meet and certainly not earning enough to get ahead or to invest. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Do you have a low-wage job or have you had one? Do you currently make $18,000 a year or less? How are you making ends meet? Are you the primary earner in your household and you rely on a job like this? Does that mean you have to work more than one job? Does that mean that you work more hours than you would like to? Is it hard to get to work if you're a single parent or a caregiver? It's a matter of finding a way to get to work each day. 
Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, In the piece, uh, Martha, you talk about education and upskilling. What is upskilling? Um, It is a a buzzword that we now use to talk about training or more education. Um, You know, so it could mean going back to school or a boot camp or taking a course online, um, any kind of activity where you're trying to build up your skills. And what is the role of the employer in terms of investing in the people who work this job, these jobs, how does that relate to the the way in which this upskilling upskilling takes place? Is it that we need employers to be more active and aggressive in investing in their employees, uh, or is that a government role that we should be relying on? Oh, it's it's definitely an employer role, um, and and you see them do it at the for workers with higher levels of education and earning higher wages. You don't see it nearly as much for frontline workers. Um, And a a lot of employers are um, willing to go along with a business model where they have low wages and high turnover. And, you know, there's other research that shows that if you invest in your workers, you can increase productivity while increasing their wages as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a question of how companies want to do their business. And yeah. I'm not suggesting that it's easy to just unilaterally raise wages without thinking about the ripple effects through the rest of your company. But companies have choices about how to run things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we also are starting to see numbers that suggest that after a really long time of wage stagnation, that wages are going up overall in America. Can you put that into the context of the research that you're doing? Is this about to get better? Is this about to get easier for people at the bottom end of the wage scale? Well, it's, I mean, wage growth at the bottom end of the wage scale is always good news. But um, the wages have been stagnant for so long that we need a much bigger uptick um, before we can start feeling better. I mean, that. so um, there was an annual growth rate of 3.6% of the wages of hospitality workers in non-supervisory positions. So that's good. But what that got them to was $14.73 per hour. That's, you know, that's that might be enough to live on if you are an adult on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get kids in there, it's that is not going to be enough it's not to cover sufficient. housing, health care, food, taxes. It's right. just it's just not enough. Right. And it's certainly not enough to get ahead, which is the thing that, that you want people to be able to do, to move from one end of the economic ladder to another. Okay, let's get to some listeners here. Let's start with Alice in Waterford. Alice, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is, I there doesn't seem to be any loyalty on the part of employers to 
um, sustain or keep the young 20s group. Um, they go in not being promised full-time because of the benefit issue and the costs associated with that, but then they're given 30 hours or 35 hours, and then the next month and a half, two months, they're given 10 or 15 hours. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, um, yeah, go ahead, Alice. It, and it's just they're not able to get out on their own. They're not able to pay a lot of their own bills, and I'm wondering if there is... Um, any hope for the the change to come in the future and what your guess um, recommendations or suggestions would be for someone in that position. Hmm. Uh, Mar- uh, Alice, I really appreciate the call and the questions. Uh, Martha Ross, how do you answer that? Well, it's, um, it's a real thing that you're pointing out, this, um, this uh, unpredictability of schedules, which, you know, has this ripple effect of you can't always plan your life, you know, uh, classes, childcare, if you're not sure when you're going to be at work. And of course, it obviously affects your earnings um, going up or down. And there is, uh, there is a movement afoot with, um, at the federal, state and local level on what's called stable scheduling and uh, re- requiring companies to provide more notice for what kind of hours they will be providing their workers um, so that people have more of a chance to plan. It's not, um, it's not an immediate fix, but it is something to, to work towards mm. to address that problem. Uh, again, Alice, thanks very much for the call and the questions. Let's go to Rob in Detroit. Rob, welcome to Detroit today. Oh, man, I haven't, um, I haven't called in before on a radio show, but <laughs> I'll keep it short and okay. sweet. Um, Very good. Less than five years ago, I was living in Detroit, still am. I was making less than $10 an hour. I went to go work for some bars um, that popped up in the area to take advantage of the economic boom in Midtown, and that helped raise me out of, you know, poverty. Hmm. However, what I had to do to get there required a lot of mental fortitude with skills that I was fortunate to be blessed with to have, you know, skills that were passed down to me just because I happened to go to the right school that happened to have a computer lab, or I went to the right public library that had a lady nice enough to teach me, you know, certain things about checking books in and out and research. Um, Mm -hmm. I also had, basically, there are jobs right now that will only pay you minimum wage. However, they require you to have a certain amount of skill sets that the people of the city are not equipped for. Mm. Um, Answering emails all the time, taking care of scheduling needs and just being available um, to be on the call. You know, there are jobs where I wasn't able to pick up a shift and then I went from 40 hours a week to 23 hours a week because I couldn't pick up one shift. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the people who are training people. You have to look at the fact that there are people in this world who don't know how to talk to people in general, especially if they're from a different socioeconomic class. Hmm. These managers, these people who run operations are people who are better off than the employees that they teach, and they don't know how to speak properly. Uh, Mental health is a huge concern, and if you are working 70-plus hours a week, you're not going to have time to make sure you're okay in the head. Yeah. Um, Rob, I, I really, yeah, no, I really appreciate you calling and sharing your experience. I mean, it, it really is remarkable the things that sort of intersect with this issue and that we all need to 
kind of be thinking about when we're thinking about making sure that people have a living a living wage. Uh, Martha Ross, I wonder what your reaction is to what Rob is talking about. Well, I I mean, what he points out is um, the sort of the touch points or the intersections that he had with other people or institutions that really helped him along. You know, the librarian or the school with a computer lab and. Those are really important, and it would be uh, it, it's it's distressing to think that you know he just th- that those don't happen as a matter of course that everyone is not equally prepared mm. um, and it, to to better prepare people for employment, we have to think about how are we teaching people. Um, who are not familiar with white-collar work environments to, you know, write a professional email or, you know, to to adapt to the professional norms of a white-collar work environment, as, as the caller was saying. I mean, there's a certain amount of code switching that has mm. to go on, and we need to, we need to address that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Rob, I really, again, appreciate very much uh, you calling and sharing your experiences. Let's go to Art in West Bloomfield. Art, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for uh, taking my call. Yeah, go ahead. Um, great program. Love listening. Thank you. Um, I thought I wanted to offer something from an employer's um, perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I love to pay my employees the best salary that I can, and I'm always looking at competitive salaries and how we can increase pay, but it's it sometimes is tough to do that with with all the things that we, I have to consider as an employer, uh, including from client demand. The other side of the the the, the equation is um, customers demand low prices and they want mm-hmm. high customer service, mm. and unfortunately that equals low salaries. Mm. Um, and that's something that we as society as demand. You know, think about if you for your phone service, you want the lowest price you want possible for your phone service or for your cell phone service. But you still want high customer service, yeah. and if that price keeps going down, something has to give. Yeah. And in my case, it's what I pay my employees in order to keep that business coming through the door. Right. I, so I, 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 I can I can take. Yeah, I I really really love that you called. I've only got about a minute left, so I want to get to Martha Ross. But thank you very much for sharing that, Martha. Martha, go ahead. We've got about a minute. Is that? <laughs> He's right. Um, we, there's a whole set of assumptions that we have to question about jobs and wages and customer expectations and, and what we'll settle for. Um, and it's, you know, sort of like you pull on this, this thread of wages for workers and you start to think about all of these other aspects. I mean, the, how can the employer afford to pay wages that are enough for someone to live on or you know in other cases perhaps wage lower wages wouldn't be so problematic if we had more affordable housing or if we had child care that was affordable and high quality mm. and available um it, it, it's a complicated picture martha ross fellow at the metropolitan policy program at brookings Really great to have you here with us to talk about this issue. Thanks for coming by. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. 
That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about a new book called Tightrope, which is a harrowing portrait of rural America. I'm going to talk with the book's Pulitzer Prize-winning authors, Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudun. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.